0: This episode of Fermented Adventure, the podcast features Jason Harris. It was recorded at Stone and Key Cellars in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to Jason and let him know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. Alright, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. We're back here at Stone and Key Sellers, and we're joined by Jason Harris. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now we met a long time ago. I feel like it's been forever since we've had a chance to sit down on the podcast, but we're here. This is, this is your place. You started all this, and it started out as a homebrew store, right? I did. I, I started a um, homebrew store, Keystone Homebrew Supply, in uh, November 1992. Now, 1992. <laughs> I, this is when the homebrew process wasn't even big yet, was it? Uh, you know, I was a little ahead of the
1: curve, but uh, I, I actually brewed my first batch in um, uh, 86, 87, Uh, It's a little murky which year exactly was, but I was a senior in high school. It it, it tailed (laughs) in. It
0: started in '86 and it just found its way into '87. Yeah,
1: (laughs) somewhere in there, you know, uh, I I did a batch. Um, I had a buddy who we we were in expository writing and we had to write an essay, a how-to essay. Ed decided he wanted to write it on how to make beer, and our teacher was kind enough to say, "Hey, there's a store in Ambler. Why don't you go pick up a book, and then you can write your essay." What was your book? It was just a. It was just an intro to brewing that okay. we went and got a, at the
0: store, and then the next day we went back and bought a starter kit and you know started making beer. Because I imagine at that time, 86, 87, yeah. there wasn't that much literature on homebrew, and there wasn't a lot of homebrew supplies at the time, were there?
1: Well, you know, actually, the classic book, The Complete Joy of Homebrewing, was out by then. Okay, and that was you know that book led many people, including myself, into the whole. Home brewing realm. It was a great book, Charlie Papazian. Yeah,
0: and that's did. still the guide in the Bible as to what people go to as well,
1: right? It's pretty well known. I, I think a lot of people have transitioned to uh, John Palmer's How to Brew as the more definitive scientific type text. You know, Charlie is great with the relax, don't worry, have a homebrew, and that beer is pretty forgiving. But if you want to get into the gory details, you know, and and dial into to all
0: the the deep processes, John Palmer uh, certainly covered that a little better. Okay. Now, eighty six, eighty seven. do you remember the first beer you brewed? What kind of beer it was?
1: It was a brown ale. We brewed it at my buddy Ed's, a different Ed's house. So okay. it was Ed, Ed and me and uh, his stove wasn't quite cooking enough, but we like put it in a cabinet as both his parents worked so we could brew after school without getting ourselves in trouble. And I remember going back two weeks later and the smell of it and the look of it and, uh, actually putting it into bottles. So you enjoy how was it? How did it turn out? It was pretty mediocre Did you get an A? But you know, uh <laughs> it wasn't my essay. It was my friend Ed's essay. Okay. Uh, you know, so <laughs> um and then I brewed all through uh college. Um and uh I started a homebrew club at the University of Vermont and we kind of set up a little buying store for our members, uh the kind of masked as a as a shop. I don't uh, now that I'm in the business, I realize that that's not really great for homebrew shops in the world, um, but uh, at the time, uh, supplies were limited in Burlington, and uh, and that's what we did, and it kind of gave me my first kind of insight into what running a homebrew shop would be
0: like. So, what was... So, so, how did you decide that this is what you wanted to do? Well, I
1: graduated with a degree in biology, and it was um, uh, December 91, and... Uh, Similar, not quite the same economic conditions, but they were pretty shitty. It okay. was hard to find <laughs> any kind of job. And you know, I was very interested in ecology and nature and wanted to do something like maybe be a natural resource person in the park service or forest service or something like that. And uh, you know, I thought I had a shoe in at Valley Forge National Park. I knew everybody there. I was an explorer scout there when I was in. High school and uh, it was a shitty job, it was temporary, I think the pay was 12 grand, no benefits, and there were four applicants and two of them had master's degrees. And uh, the writing was on the wall at that point, if I wanted to do anything cool in ecology, I needed to go back to school and I was, I was done with school. So uh, one of the other things I had done in college was take some small business classes. I had a, a basic business plan for a brew pub um, that I was going to start. But I didn't have any money, not a lot anyway, and, uh, and no actual business experience um, for running like a brewery. Uh, so I started with the homebrew shop because it was a lot lower startup cost, kept me in the same industry. I could gain experience, and I figured I, I would open a brewery later on.
0: How was the, the homebrew shop received? I mean, obviously you've been here for so long, I mean, quite some time, and this isn't your original location. But, no. but how was it received? What was the experience of starting that up for you? It was really
1: great. I mean, um, it was it was fun. It was like a, a niche that, you know, people were starting to explore and get excited about. And, and I pretty much from 92 through, well, the first year I was only up there for two months. But every year after that, except for one, I saw double-digit growth until 2013. Okay. So that was, you know, over 20 years of, of continued Excitement and interest, and and people, you know, delved into the hobby and were very enthusiastic about.
0: So, where are you seeing right now? Where's the homebrew segment? Where's that going? What What are you seeing out of that? The the last six or seven years have been really challenging for homebrew stores,
1: and and a huge number in just the past two years. What's now. impacted that? Why? Uh It's it's as far as I can tell, it's it's three main things that I would cite: um, online shopping, uh, powered by big boxes and people with low overhead so you can buy anything online and there's always somebody who has lower overhead especially if they don't have a brick and mortar store and they're willing to work on smaller margins so so they they cut the margin there um so like amazon people can sell anything on amazon it just it just has a huge impact on retail um any kind of retail in fact retail in itself is kind of an endangered species if you ask me um the other thing kind of on the same line of online stuff is, is YouTube you want to know how to do anything you just get on YouTube and say I want to do this I want to do that I mean I, uh, I bought a, a bathing suit in the store legit and uh, got home and I was traveling and I got home and I realized that the security clip was still on oh show, yeah right how, how would you take that off I don't know I'm not sure, I go on YouTube the, there it is so, oh there is a way to do that yeah, on YouTube so... I didn't know okay <laughs> For the shoplifters know, <laughs> you know, uh,
0: they all probably this know, is, anyway. The, the uh, podcast then, is, a, is a phenomenal how-to on whatever we can do, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so, so our business has
1: really been based on service. You know, people want to make beer, they want to make wine, they want to make cider, whatever they want to make, they come in, we're the authorities, we show them the equipment, we walk them through, we help them, they call us for advice. And as YouTube has grown and more and more content of how-to to do stuff with little videos is online especially with the with younger people, they've become reliant and, and, and YouTube's their go-to. And so, you know, there's a lot of local people who may have started homebrewing in the last four or five years who might be super close here have never come to the store because A, they learn what they need to learn online, and B, they don't they order everything online. So they don't even look to see what a local resource is. And so they bought online. And then just compounded on top of everything is that Our best customers as homebrewers, we helped make successful in opening breweries. There are breweries everywhere. And, you know, I I could tell you the different cycles through the 20-plus years that I've been in the homebrew business as to why people brewed. But, you know, the pure experimental creative process that, you know, people 17, 10, 12 years ago, you know, they wanted something crazy. I want a chocolate peanut butter beer. I want a... You know, hot pepper with, you know, uh, mole. You know, who knows what, you know. And the only way to have that then was to do it yourself. But all those people that did it now have open breweries. And and they're doing it. And there's a brewery, you know, within five miles of almost anybody. And the beer is constantly changing. And it's experimental. And a lot of the reasons why people would brew have been removed. Now, upside economy is never good for homebrewing either, because people have less time and they have more money. And so when you have you know, a lack of time and lots of money, you know, there's a lot of things that you could do yourself, but you just buy. So you know, in the last, since the recovery in, in 08 and things have improved, uh, people, you know, for some people anyway, have more money and, and less time. And, and that also contributes
0: to um, negative homebrew. What's the impact been of the coronavirus on your business, what have you seen with that? So all of a sudden, um, we were challenged with not allowing people to come into the store. Um, so anybody that would want homebrew supplies, materials for home brewing, they can't really access them right now, correct? Well, that's
1: that's not true. We, you know, we we took steps and, uh, and adapted. So um, uh, originally. You know, the governor of Pennsylvania shut down all non-essential businesses, but uh, considered essential was mail order. You know, they didn't shut down Amazon or any other place online you could order stuff. And so we just reverted to online only. We told customers, hey, we can't have you come to the store, but you can place an order and we'll get it out to you. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, lucky for us, we actually revamped our website just about a year ago. So we're on a much more modern, you know, technology website than we were, and, and we were in a good position to take advantage of it. And shortly after the shutdown from, from uh, Governor Wolf, we applied for an exemption, and we didn't ask for people to come to the store. We asked for curbside pickup. We said, you know, we sell things to breweries and wineries because we do sell to small-scale producers that are essential for their industry and their production, and as food producers, wineries are considered essential um, and so they granted us uh, a waiver, and, and we immediately moved back to curbside pickup. We, we actually were doing curbside pickup and mail order before the governor actually, like, made everybody shelter in place. We were already limiting the people that could come into the store because we want to continue to operate, and we want our... We wanted to do it safely. Yeah, we want to keep our employees safe. We want to be able to serve the most amount of people. I mean, if we all get sick because everybody came in to shop um that doesn't do anybody
0: any good. Right. And you know, Montgomeryville this this area within, you know, the, the the Montgomery County area has been has been hit fairly hard of late, but it's getting a lot better.
1: Yeah, the the number of cases in our region of Montgomery County is is really been diminishing. We're on the downside of of the uptick but uh, uh, of the curve, but um you know, it's hard to tell as, as things loosen up and more people are out. And if you drive around here now, it says traffic has gotten a lot. Greater. Yeah, there's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of people out in the world. And and uh, until we get some permanent solutions, um, I think we're going to be on a roller coaster of, um, you know, go out. No, stay in. Go out. No, <laughs> oh, sure. stay in. And, and homebrewing is a great thing to do when you have to stay in. You know, everybody's getting back in touch with cooking and cooking making bread and, you know, and, and homebrewing. A lot of people who have taken a break, like their kids keep them too busy. Their work keeps them too busy. They're working at home. Their kids are at home. Like it's, it's a good thing to do. It's, it's almost like a family project, you know? Um, and so in our, on our business analysis, we're seeing a huge uptick in ingredients and bottles and some equipment, but, um, a big downside on a lot of like the add-ons and the gifty items and the honey and the more impulse buys that, that we've seen. So our sales actually have been pretty level compared to what they were. But, the, but the, they've shifted in what people are buying and, and we're seeing a lot a lot of production ingredients and a lot less of, of uh, other kind of ancillary things.
0: So the good news is and what I'm hearing is your business is doing okay you would love to get back to having people inside your store to shop, socialize, to be that resource and conversation if somebody's trying to produce something, whatever it is. Yeah. But Stone & Key Sellers and what you're doing is going to be here after the pandemic and you guys are doing it right. Both Keystone Number Supply and Stone and & Key Sellers, you know, we plan for both of them to be here
1: post-pandemic. Good.
0: Post-pandemic. Yeah. Now, you had the homebrew supply. The Keystone Homebrew Supply. Yeah, how did you transition into the winemaking and the cider and and what else? All the other things you're doing. Sure. So homebrew had been growing and growing. And I don't know if you're ever at my
1: store that was on 309, just about a mile from here, but it was a tiny, tiny little house. Right. I mean, it was like 800 square feet, and it was packed full. And that was a
0: historic house. I
1: remember at the time, right? Uh, no, that's no? Like old lady <laughs> lived there, and uh, it was you know. It, it, it was. It was just a house. It was a comic book store uh, before we were there, and for for the, you know, eighteen years I was in that location. Like people would come in and say, "I don't remember when this was a comic book store," uh, which apparently it was for probably like ten years before I got into it. Um, but no, it was it was a tiny little house, and uh, it had steps in the front and steps in the back, and we were doing you know over a million dollars in sales and everything got carried in the the back and got how we helped. Customers carried out the front, and it was a lot of work. And so we definitely knew that we needed a, a larger location, and, and the hunt was on. And you know, running a huber store like we did with uh, fresh juice and grapes for winemakers means we need refrigeration, and we need dock space to unload trucks, and we also um, need retail space. And that's a, a weird combination in zoning. Like it's hard to find a building uh, properly zoned where you can conduct retail. And have a big loading dock and and do you know refrigeration inside? Uh, it, it doesn't all fit so.
0: This together. really
1: turned out to be the perfect location for you. This turned out to be a great building, although it was you know we went from eight hundred square feet to if you count our outbuildings twenty four thousand square feet. Okay. and it, the jump was probably um, bigger than I should have done, and I've definitely struggled through <laughs> growing into the space and generating enough revenues to, to cover. Uh, the expenses of it. So um, there's definitely been challenges there, but um, the winery was was uh, was part of the the plan once I I had another plan before that, a brewing school, but the partner had kind of that fell apart and and I was looking in New Jersey and they had all these wine schools over there where they called them wine schools. Where okay. people came and made a barrel of wine. They actually didn't have a winery license uh, the the facilities, but they helped people make wine. And I said, that's great. And in Pennsylvania, uh, once the the Supreme Court made a ruling saying that that states couldn't control what kind of grapes you used, um, uh, all of a sudden I was like, hey, I can use the same grapes I've been bringing in for consumers, which I know are great, and make good wine. Uh, and I can use that uh, when I create a winery and have people come in and make wine for
0: us. So what year did you start bringing in the wine? When did this become also a winery?
1: So... We bought the building, and I started the process of buying the building, um, like, in 08. <laughs> the market crashed. It was pretty horrible timing. Uh, and I,
0: I, you know, by the time I got through the... But great great businesses were started during recessions and downtime. So sure. So you're amongst great company there.
1: Yeah, so, so you know, I started negotiating in 08 and then we had to get the sewer, and then we had to get zoning, and then, you know we we moved the homebrew business in here in 11 and then uh in 2013 we in october we finally finished the construction which we didn't add anything to the footprint but you know the winery we were sitting in was just a big dark dank warehouse with you know ripply old concrete floors mismatched and no air conditioning and anything and we like gutted this section and ripped out the floor and uh, put in HVAC and poured the floors with slopes and strength trains, and we put in our walk-in refrigeration in the back, and we put in an outside loading dock um, and uh, really adapted the building um, to our use.
0: And so Stoney Key Cellars officially launched in October 2013. 2013. And when did cider come on board? When did you start doing that? I mean, I have to check, but it was really shortly after. Okay. Um, what, what was the decision? Why, why cider? What was it? I, I can understand the wine part, but cider at that time really wasn't on a it, lot of people's already, vision. It was already growing, okay. you know, as a, as a segment. And,
1: you know, I like to think I'm always a little ahead of the curve. I it sounds like it, yeah. Um, and so one of the things that we've done for years in the hunger stores, we, you know, we started supplying juice and grapes. And then we had cider makers. I'm like, hey, we want to make hard cider. You know, and the typical supermarket gallon jug isn't necessarily blended great okay. for, for fermenting. It doesn't usually have
0: no. A, that's not what you would.
1: It use, doesn't right? usually have enough acid to it. So you have to have a better acid line. So we started working with uh, an orchard in Bucks County called the Penn Vermont Fruit Farm, and we quip, quickly outstripped their ability to supply us. So was a, a lovely old couple that ran it on this turn of the century. Uh, uh, mill it's still there you know, people should go see it it's run by an old tractor with belts and it's all okay. wood. It's, this old guy one of, you know the, the uh can't remember her name it was from vermont and anyway it's great farm and then we started working with delval university and they had a cider press and um the horticultural program and and then we started doing single varieties of of ciders through them and then you know I started reading more and more about cider and and then there's cider varieties like of apples from England and France and Spain, and those varieties tend to have more tannins and tannins build structure and body in beverages. And so dessert or table apples don't have many tannins. Um, and so I decided I was gonna try and source some tannic cider juice for home producers to make like the real deal. Uh, and that led me, to New Hampshire, and there's a, a guy up there named uh, Stephen Wood, uh, and he has a, a, a cider cidery called Farnham Hill, uh, and his um, orchard is called Poverty Lane. And uh, I didn't know who he was, but uh, he was already a luminary in the in the cider industry. Okay, and um, and I called him up, and I told him I wanted to buy cider for for home cider makers. And he called me. He thought I was a little crazy, but I. I packed up the car with my wife and my one-year-old and, and we drove up to New Hampshire and we got to his place and he met me there and I started talking to him and he was like, you know, he, you know from all my years of fermentation and selling cider and making wine and all that, you know, it, it didn't take long for him
0: to be like, hey, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. And, uh, you know, and- I think once people understand you have a reputable knowledge yeah. of something, it's an easier conversation to have, right?
1: Yeah, so then the the, the the thief comes out and we're pulling samples from barrels and we're talking about this and that and, you know, three hours later um, uh, he, he shuttled my wife off with somebody else. It's okay. like, go take her out to pick cherries somewhere with my <laughs> one-year-old and, and, and we spent the afternoon in the cidery trying samples and talking about it. And
0: It, it sounds like a phenomenal experience. It, it was
1: great and, uh, you know, uh, shortly after he said, "All right, I'll, I'll sell you some," and I shipped them some buckets, and we make some arrangements for trucks and freight. And, and before I knew it, we're bringing down, you know, uh, buckets of juice for um, for home cider makers to get the real deal—the the the the, Tanac, the bitter sharps, the bittersweets—that this just wasn't available, um, and so. Just like with the grapes that we source um, from the same sources I've been working with for years and years to make wine in our winery, um, the cider started with you know what we were sourcing uh, locally to uh, supply our home um, cider makers, uh, and we've adapted that to to the winery. So it you know it wasn't like a big leap to be like oh we're gonna do cider. It was just kind of extending, continuing to extend the the contacts that I had and 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 you know, what I saw was a, a growing trend, uh, and, and putting it into our winery. There, there was a lot of kind of, um, uh, organic growth in, in our revenue streams of the products we make and how we operate at Stonikey. Um, we had certain ideas of what we were going to do and how much we were going to do of it. And the reality was, was very different.
0: <laughs> Are you still sourcing from that same uh,
1: uh, poverty lane yeah. center? Yeah. We, um, we have uh, a bottle I can show you, um, Uh, of his stuff, and uh, we have some uh, back in a tote, uh, getting, you know, continuing to age, and and we'll be uh, back in bottles soon. So, yeah, still work with Steve, uh, still get some of his his juice. Um, We also work with some growers in upstate New York to get some heirloom varieties that are hard to get in Pennsylvania, Northern Spy, Red Spy, uh, Golden Russet, um, Greenings. Uh, In fact, one of the ciders have for us to try is a blend of Northern Spy and Red Spy. That's the Spy vs. Spy. Yeah, we're we're gonna
0: try Spy versus Spy. Why do we just jump right into it? We could talk about that. Okay. So glasses. so to talk about the blend here. It's fifty fifty
1: Northern Spy Red Spy. Um, so these are more heirloomy apples than um, than true like tannic cider apples. But there's definitely, and this one's done totally dry. We didn't back sweeten with anything. Um, no other fruits are added just
0: those two apples 50 50 blend so Um, you have the whole team it's just you and every are you producing everything cider wine and things like that you have the team producing you guys come together and decide what you want to do that year or what you want to produce as you come to production so it's it's been a team you know and, and you know i have a lot of
1: ideas about what we should produce and i work on sourcing um uh all the fruit and driving the process in terms of what we make in the winery both cider and and wine uh but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of the fermentation and the yeast selection and nutrients and the processes and the pumping and the filtration um that has always been the the winemaking team's um job winemaking cider making it's it's all it's all one
0: group um that do it. So do you have some of the producers right now that are like the same way with the the grape varietals? They'll call you up and say, "Hey, this is a really good year for this," and, and or and does that affect your production or how does that work? So I've built a really
1: strong bond with Solberry Orchards in Bucks County, okay. which is up near New Hope. And um, Brian Smith is the owner, and uh, and he is a, a, a great guy and a meticulous producer uh, in terms of how he. Keeps his orchards and how he processes his fruit, and uh, you know some places you know aren't as clean as you want. But when you go into his place, like I feel really comfortable with what he does. And ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of our cider comes from Solberry Orchard. Okay, um, and you know we've we've definitely worked on a financial arrangement. We we pretty much produce almost all our ciders in um, January, February, March um, after the harvest. He puts apples in cold storage, but when it starts to warm up, he doesn't want to have to pay for uh, the refrigeration. And so we process all the fruit in that timeline because it works best for him. And then we, uh, you know, work through the rest of the year in terms of you know the the deal. So uh, it's it's been really. Great He gets a lot more from us in terms of uh than he would in the bulk market, just selling the apples
0: off for apples sauce or, or other things. We talked to Brian and Matt, and we talked about the impact of the spider lanternfly yeah and I know we we, we were going to kind of you know address that. How is that affecting the apple situation for for cider or the apple orchards what what's the impact there
1: so I mean spotter lanternflies have other issues besides just you know being negative on fruit they they have you know this kind of honeydew, like gooey stuff they produce. Um, but so far, um, it hasn't had a major impact. Um, uh, my Apple suppliers aren't saying, uh, Hey, we're we're in danger of not producing because of the spotted lanternfly. I think uh, lanternflies have had a much bigger negative impact on grapevines um, more immediately than. did they organic. have
0: apple orchards on apples? And
1: you know, and a lot of people ask, "Hey, are you is your orchard organic? Are your apples organic?" East coast is so challenging to grow any fruit um, totally organically, just because it's so humid um, and there's fire blight and black rot and you know, powdery mildew and all kinds of things. Um, so, you know, judicious uses, no more than necessary of, um, you know, antifungal products uh, make a big difference in, in production. So, um, you know, I know they've started developing uh, solutions for sp- spotted lanternfly, and I think that there's also, they've noticed some um, some biological interaction with, I don't know if it was a mold or, or some other kind of, Naturally occurring East Coast thing that's going to inhibit um, the land. Oh, effect. fascinating! So, okay, um, so it's it's still challenging, but I th- I think that as time goes on, um, uh, people get more of a grip on how to treat it, and just like like anything else, like forty years ago, we figured out. Gypsy moths came and you know defoliated all the forests, and um, they all came back. Um, but you know, you you lose plants along the way. I mean, you know, chestnut trees used to be really prevalent around here, and now there's not because of the the chestnut blight, um, and so we lost all our ash trees. Um, but you know, resistant things will be found, and, and solutions to to pests will be found. But it's you know, it's always it's always challenging. You know, the the latest non-native infestation. Everybody's yeah, the aware. invasive it's species the, the, though, right? the, the murder hornets from uh, Japan. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That's what everybody's talking about.
0: Man. So this this spy, spy is light, it's crisp, yeah. it doesn't, it, there's a little dryness to the finish. Um, yeah, and I, I think the nose is great. Uh,
1: kind of shows apples, little, you know, fresh cut apple, and and um, I always notice kind of like, almost like a, a latex, um, smell in in a lot of like apple you sure protein.
0: that's not the mask <laughs> uh,
1: yeah <laughs> and, and this one really opened up and you get fruit in it yes lo- you do a lot of times um is when cider really young they, they don't have much nose to it and a lot of like producers will will push the cider through as, as fast as possible they don't really um age it with us most of our production happens in the fall and then we
0: we sell it throughout the year so a lot of our ciders get to be
1: a little more well. You
0: know, you bring up a great point because cider really doesn't, I mean, unless it's something more complex, really what you're smelling is apples. Yeah. And as we talked with Jason and Brian, I mean, there may be some things as you get um, your nose or your mind um, conditioned to smell something, you, you may smell that. Um, you know, I, I do smell, I know, for some reason I get the apples, like you said, fresh cut apples, but also like an applesauce. so I get maybe a cinnamon on there or a little baking spice on there, but that, you know, essentially, it's, it's not hugely complex.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, not... Wines de- tend to have a little more complexity on the nose um, than ciders. And you'll find more ciders that have possibly other things um, added. Um, sugar is a common thing for people to add to um, ciders because it, it kind of enhances the fruit. And, um, you know, a lot of diehard people are just like, um, you know, we don't like fruit. Or sugar added or other things added to it. They want just a, a pure cider experience. But, um, you know, the next one we're going to try is called um, Soli, which has kind of like a double meaning. It comes from Solberry. Okay. Um, but it's only the apples. So it's solely apples. Gotcha. Um, so that's that's the name for that. All right.
0: Let's try that one and we'll talk about that one as you... Uh... Yeah, this one we have in a can. Now, most people can pick up growlers here or how would they take... So we do growlers...
1: And we also can some of our products. Okay. Um, uh,
0: so. I like the sound of that <laughs> going into the glass. Wow, that's totally different. Yeah. So this is a
1: blend from, from Solberry. And so that's part of what the team does in winemaking. same with the cider making is that they take you know various batches that may have different characteristics and then they blend it together. Uh, shooting for consistency i mean even on the nose
0: it's it's just a totally different experience yeah so this
1: is comprised mostly of just standard eating apples Um, but uh, we always try and have a good proportion of of sharps so like um, gold rush or granny smith or ida reds um, those apples all have a lot of acidity to it and we always like to make sure that we have enough to give kind of more of a balanced flavor
0: I get more earthiness when we're like even like an apple skin smell, like when you peel an apple. That's mm-hmm. what I kind of get out of that, that that nose of that. It's sweeter yeah. than the last one.
1: And it kinda enhances the fruit like a little bit with the with the sweetness. It's it's easier to kind of taste the apple components. It kind of meets people's expectations. So a lot of times when you're eating an apple, it's sweet and you get the apple flavor. When we get a totally dry cider like the spy versus the spy. Some people have a hard time kind of adjusting their mind to it's apple flavor without the sweetness, right? But a lot of commercial ciders are just made that are over. Oh, they just saturate sugar. them
0: with sugar. Yeah, yep. It's, it's and you you hard it's, it's almost sugar with a little apple flavor versus being able to enjoy the flavor of the apples with a little bit of sweetness. To yeah. It. So
1: originally, Soleil, the first few batches of Soleil that we put out were sweeter because we were trying to kind of meet that market, but. Um, We've backed off a little bit um, to give it. I mean, our goal with any cider that, that gets some back sweetening is that it has it has to be just enough to make it um, enhance the fruit more. And then once we see the minimum amount of sugar we can get to enhance the fruit,
0: then we stop, and that's kind of yeah. I, that's where exactly we're at. the experience I get, Jason. That yeah. you you get really a nice flavorful apple to it, and then the sweetness comes in. But it still leaves you enjoying the apple, and that's what I, I, you know. That's what cider should be. Yes, crisp, refreshing. And again, you you talk about the the sugary sweetness of, of commercially produced ciders, and I think that's unfortunately, and that's what you face here. People come in with this expectation. Oh, I've had cider, I don't like it, or I've had cider, and they expect this sugary, sweetie kind of a, a, sure. a, a beverage, and that's not what this is.
1: Yeah, and a lot a lot of the really big producers use concentrate um, and. You know, concentrate has its place, but you lose a lot of nuance um, in the apples when you concentrate it. You lose aromas and, and flavor compounds, and, uh, but that's the only like, efficient way of mass-producing cider. So once you get past you know, using all fresh, you know, if you hit a certain capacity, you got to consider concentrate. We're never going to
0: Yeah, get <laughs> <laughs> but But even so, you're still producing different ciders anyway. Yeah. So unless you hit it out of the park where you've got this you know, great chain that wants to start handling your, your cider, yeah. I would imagine at that point it's just continuing to be a craft cidery, which is what you are. You're a craft cidery. Sure. I mean, we could probably go a fair bit bigger
1: um, in our production, even if we picked up a, a, a big client um, and still maintain fresh Fresh uh, product. Our first cider we actually commercially made was uh, in conjunction with our, our kind of barrel business that we uh, do through the Keystone Homebrew Supply, and uh, we bring in uh, apple brandy barrels from a famous producer in New Jersey that um, hasn't authorized the use of their name. With uh, begins with a C, D. ends with
0: an S. No.
1: Oh, all right. <laughs> starts with an L, ends with a D. Okay. Um, oh yeah yeah okay or, i got this that.
0: Continually or, or be dist- enter the ds dist- yeah distillery <laughs> in, in the u.s i think, gotcha. I think they were the i first jumped over the pond point. and i went to france there i don't know how i got there real fast but yeah
1: <laughs> anyway um so we the first cider we did to sell in the winery we we uh we aged in um,
0: that barrel that barrel and it, it had a
1: real um we just call it barrel aged and and it was great um Those barrels are really hard to come by these days, and um, I'm hoping to get some in the next couple of months. We're kind of out of our our, uh, apple brandy barrel. It's pure. We actually have one called Double Barrel that's that's part um, uh, rye whiskey, part um, apple brandy. That Um, sounds awesome. Yeah.
0: When's that one come out? That one is uh, is draft only.
1: I don't know that we actually have it up on the board. Okay.
0: uh, It will be... um, available for
1: growler fills
0: and, and in the wineries It's pretty spot back. This is the fun part. And, and, and is it fun for you just seeing what you can create and then the response that you get from your customers and fans? Sure, absolutely. I mean, uh,
1: it, I'm certainly not in it for the money <laughs> at this point anyway, because <laughs> uh, yeah. it's been, a you know, it takes a lot. Uh, we, we, a lot of people start with a, a small space and start making wine. And then, as their production grows, and customers grow, they, they move into a bigger spot. But um, we jumped into a gigantic spot to start out, and lineup. you're growing into the spot, and we're growing into the spot. And it's you know, it's been
0: it's been a big challenge, like the last seven years, to actually get to this place. But um, I, I look at it this way: I mean, you're 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 a quintessential small business. You're really employing the community. I mean, I, I and I see a whole bunch of people. I mean, you're closed right now. I mean, in terms of you're doing pickup service, you're doing the yeah. curbside. But there are are like eight people here right now. Uh, not in the winery, but yeah, no, no, in, we just in the just building, er, yeah. yeah, just just everybody doing something. There's there's a lot of people still working when you know businesses, you know, some of the businesses are really struggling to we, keep to keep business been through the door. Super fortunate
1: um, in that uh, that we can continue to operate and that we're doing our best to do it as safe as possible. And so far, um, not one. Going-
0: yeah, on the knock on the, the table there. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know our team is is trying to you know is is being safe and and we've been you know lucky so far. So um, we're doing everything we can so that we can continue to to you know foster our business and, and serve our customers. Um, so that's. Uh, that's how we're doing
0: it. I think that's cool. What's the next one we're going to try today? <clears throat> the next one is called – I keep well, I keep getting ahead of you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> I can talk forever. Um, I have
1: two more on the table. One's called Cherry Pie. It's kind of our flagship. It's right. infused with tart Montmorency cherries. I also brought one that, that – uh, I think it was Jeremy. It might have been part of the, the team back there, but they, they developed it.
0: Um,
1: the name is UpDoc. Up doc. yeah. Okay,
0: so I have to ask a question. Good. What's the question? Oh, what's up doc? <laughs> Got it. Oh, yeah, see, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. That was good. That was, you know that kind of snuck
1: up uh, okay. me. And this one has uh, ginger and purple carrots in it, so uh, kind of things that rabbits might want to eat. Okay, so we, could, we kind of had that up joke. Um, so, I didn't uh, see that
0: coming. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this one's so ginger purple carrots.
1: So it's also dry. The cherry's a little sweeter. Uh, ginger stronger flavor. I'm, I'm
0: kind of mentally struggling. Like let's do the ginger like one you? first and, okay. and I'll make the decision for you. All right. Now, how did this come about? So this is a unique cider. I, I don't necessarily, you, this is one that kind of stands out. How did this one come about to be produced? Well, ginger is a great flavor for and, cider. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I like ginger
1: and, uh, we got a whole bunch of, f- you know, flavorings included uh, a purple carrot concentrate. Um, and, and you know the guys in the back came and said, "Hey, we want to do this ginger purple carrot." I'm like, "Okay," and uh, and they put it together, and, and we made up a 150 gallon batch, and people liked it, and we did it
0: again. I'm actually this smells the the, the smell is incredible. Yeah, it's just the ginger just kind of takes over. But, but you also get the fruitiness, fruit. the earthiness of the apple. I mean, there's it's still
1: there. Yeah, I'm working on a partnership with um, a Japanese restaurant. You know, we think sushi. You get the ginger on the side, stuff like that. I think this uh, particular cider with the with the strong ginger aroma flavor, it would be lovely uh, with fish and
0: sushi. I think you're right. I think this is amazing. There's a sweetness there. I, I you know, what? If there's you a, hadn't told me, there's more acidity too. Yeah, if um, you hadn't told me that there was a carrot there, I, I wouldn't have noticed until you tell me. And then there's that. So how about that color? I mean, well, I'm gonna use the paper that Brian brought. So yeah. yeah. It's like a ruby... It's like this ruby-colored garnet. Crimson. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah.
1: Like, almost like cardinal red. So I'm going to open my mouth, because I never talk. But I thought that was going to be my
0: favorite, the last one we just did. But this is just amazing.
1: This is delicious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the color is...
1: So... Um, The production team got, I guess, Desi ginger. I'm not even sure exactly what Desi ginger is um, locally. And they just sat back here and peeled like 100 pounds of it and then boiled it to extract the ginger flavor. And then we added that back to the cider with a little uh, purple carrot concentrate to give it this lovely color and some earthy character.
0: Yeah, this is beautiful. That is delicious. And and, and your, your idea of pairing this with like sushi or... Something like that. that. That's spot on. Although, you can just sit and drink this Absolutely. just yeah. as it is. You don't need a food pairing. This is just a lot of fun. This just became my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was easy. So, you want to do the cherry one? Sure. Okay. I'll let you do the honors. Now, when everything goes back to whatever you know normal may be in yeah. life, what what kind of activities <laughs> do you have here at Stone & Key? What can people expect when they come by? Sure. I mean, the we've
1: adapted hugely to this COVID situation and really changed our revenue streams. Um, and before this, um, every Friday night we had a, you know, open to the public kind of concept event to bring people in. And, and, uh, we would do trivia and music bingo and live music and, all kinds of things, and um, on a very popular trivia night like Friends or Harry Potter or something like that, we could pull in literally 200 people who will come in to enjoy a night of, you know, uh, wine and cider, and we sell a local craft beer. And uh, I and have, have a, f- a food truck. Yep, we, we do have some meat here. And so, you know, so Friday nights were big for us. I mean, people would come in, We you know, we'd have a full event staff and, and um, it, it would be, you know, a lot of fun. Some nights, you know, drew bigger crowds than others. Uh, and so it's, it's always, I mean, that's a little hit and miss and, and entertainment isn't always cheap. Uh, but, uh, but you know, on the good nights, it was, it was really good. Um, we also have hosted lots of parties, private parties in the space on... Saturday nights, um, Saturday during the day, Sundays, uh, our typical days for us to have parties. And all those parties have been canceled and some of them rebooked and a lot of them we'll never see again.
0: Uh, And I think the hard part right now is the anticipation or the planning of when people can actually book things that they want to book for. You know, like bachelorette parties or, you know. We keep pushing everything back, Things like that, right.
1: So, uh, yeah, it's really hard. I don't know. I'm thinking a lot about outside. I know outside is supposed to be safer than inside. I don't have uh, PLCB approval for outside. I don't have any outside licensed area. I don't have outside dining or drinking or you know serving anything from the township. Um, so if I'm going to adapt to more like alfresco model, which might be able to spread people out further and be a little safer, I definitely will have to do some government
0: Negotiations. Again, this is where this is where the the whole coronavirus and and what we're facing with COVID nineteen. You adapt your model. You adapt your business. You figure it out. Yeah. Because if you just you just stop and say I can't, it's too hard, you you don't survive. You don't keep moving on, and you've got a lot of customers that are really happy and excited about what you're doing. You know, with the virtual release part of that you're going to be doing that you've done. You know, the new. You you got barrels and barrels here. So I know there's, there's see plenty of stuff here that people want to drink, and people are waiting for you to produce. Wineries have a much longer outlook on production. I mean, because we
1: only get grapes typically once a year. Breweries can cycle through their stuff every like three four weeks. Um, so wineries really are more pre adapted to deal with COVID than than a lot of other businesses. But what you know what we've done. You know, we kind of relied on the events and people coming in and drinking at the bar and doing tastings and stuff like that. Uh, and we never really had a lot of people just coming in to get bottles to take home the drink. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a lot of customers and now a lot of repeat customers that are constantly coming back to get our wines. And, and people did it before, but, you know, our sales of to-go bottles have been great. And then the the state... You know, shut down all the the liquor stores for a while. They're still mostly shut down, um, and it certainly has brought attention to local alcohol producers that we had really received before. So a lot more people know about us than, than have known. I, I think that's in the a great. Past.
0: I think you make a great point, and that's a fantastic impact. Yeah. That for those that wanted to enjoy spirits, wine, beer, whatever you want to drink, and all of a sudden it's shut down. Yeah. Now you have. I, all, this, many, all the small many. producers are all of a
1: sudden like getting business that they didn't have before. Uh, I can tell that the breweries have struggled a bit, especially with the model, with the tasting room, because the profit margin on selling a pint of beer over a bar is much higher than selling a prowler or a growler to go. But we, you know, our cost on a bottle of wine really hasn't changed. No, it's still um, the same bottle, it's still the same cost. Yes, um, and getting more customers to come to the store and order online and do curbside pickup Uh, has been big, and we've also shipped an awful lot more wine. Um, The one other benefit we've seen is that the state of Pennsylvania has an expanded wine permit, which gave people with an R license um, the ability to sell wine to go if they paid for this R license. And so a lot of people kind of set up little wine bottle shops, kind of in competition with the state store, but unfortunately they have to buy all their wine through the state store unless they buy it from a Pennsylvania winery. And so one of the things we did when the state stores shut down is I directed my sales guy, Terry. I said, Terry, you know, I've told you before you should be talking to all these expanded wine permit people to get our wines in there. But we went back and reviewed and and contacted everybody in the five counties, you know, including Philadelphia, to say, hey, you know, we got supplies. We can supply you. And we've picked up close to a dozen new commercial customers that have you know, their purchasing of our bottle of wine has really helped give me the ability to bring back our production staff um, full time. Even before we got our, our PPP,
0: um, so it's really given you. I mean, you, you can see it. I mean, you've got a good like you've got a good sense about you, Jason. That you're going to figure it out. That you're going to be able to move forward. And what's going to happen is, I think your business is going to be better. Obviously we don't like pandemics and we don't like the impact of what it means in the economy. Sure. But I think overall, I think your business is gonna be stronger to what it was before because now you've created new customers, new fans, you've got new outlets for your product. Exactly. And you've also been able to keep the relationships you've had you have. You know, those those great producers, the varietal producers still know that you're here and you're gonna continue forward. The the same thing with your cider and what you're doing and and the other producers. And look, your staff is happy. You're keeping them employed. They're still going to be raving fans. They're going to be out there talking about the brand as well. And you no one never likes to see what's happened here. But you've really, you know, you've you've taken lemons and you've made lemonade. I mean, in this case, I I don't know if you're going to do a lemon cider, but maybe... (laughs) who knows Uh, i I mean i have
1: a lot of ideas for future ciders um i do want to do a dry hop cider i think that's a thing that a lot of
0: people enjoy Um, i'll be there let me know it's a a beautiful thing it's nice and floral it's a delicious cider
1: yeah so one of the next ones the the next one i guess we're going to try is our cherry pie okay which is kind of our first venture into like a fruit infused cider uh and we followed it with um uh, pineapple express um which I didn't bring to the table no, you didn't. but it's up there but if you do people, ask you know we could probably people that can
0: people here. can come in and get that one next. <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and we'll probably be looking, you know, to add other uh, fruits, but cherry pie has really been like a core became a core product for us. Um people mm. love it and some places once they put it on tap, they can't take it off, which I find, you know, is great. You know, because customers get pissed. They're like, "Where's that cherry stuff?" Like that becomes their go-to drink. At some places, and when they try and switch it up for a different cider, the the, the, the consumer demands that that cherry comes.
0: Back. I really love and enjoy the way the cherry finishes on on the tongue on the palate. I yeah. just I just love that because you're not expecting that from a cider, and that's not what you originally come up with. Sure. And so so tart Montmorency cherries are kind of like the bright red ones that you see
1: like the first second week of June for like six or seven days by some Am- Amish farmer it's not the kind you see in the supermarket all that often they they have a pretty short window um and you know we buy this from a a michigan producer the the king orchards and and i've you know met with them many times I, i pretty much know all the producers of of uh the fruit that we have and the grapes and stuff um that we get um and they're you know they have a great business um they grow an awful lot of of tart cherries out there in michigan and uh you know, this is a, this is a great product. We, it, it really started as our apple brandy barrel aged cider. And we had this cherry concentrate and we were adding five milliliters to a pint glass and calling it uh, cherry bomb. And, you know, people were really starting to get into it in the tasting room. And, um, we were kind of like, well, if we're just adding it there, why don't we add it ahead of time and, and make the product? Um, so I think, uh, Jeremy, once again, I think that he, he was the one that kind of invented the cherry bomb for us. Uh, that name was already taken by another cider company. Um, and I, Sal, uh, who is, is um, our compliance tax kind of back-of-the-house manager, uh, said it tastes just like a cherry pie. And um, and that's where the name cherry
0: that's pie came That's where it's from. stuck. Yeah. This is – look, I think everything we've had today and the other podcast we did with um, Matt and Brian – I'm just enjoying the the craft of what you're producing, and that's really what's about. It becomes this this level of artisanship that you take something and you talk about um, you know acidity and sweetness and and how is this going to come out and you bring you know purple carrots into the whole thing and, and and I think that's what's most enjoyable. That as a consumer, as a guest of your you know establishment, I get to enjoy really what you're producing. And, and it's just a wonderful thing, and I'm glad there are people out there like you and your staff and the people that you have here that are, 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 are taking part in what you're doing. It's just really enjoyable, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I know we've been here a number of times, and you've got a great staff behind the Tasting Room Bar, and tell you what, there's a lot of stuff to taste here, and you're going to be here a while. So if you're in, if you're in the Montgomeryville area, um, this is definitely a place to come in. You know, and, and you have games, and you do different nights. Like you said, you have entertainment. It's really yeah. an enjoyable spot, and, and, and I just just can't tell you and thank you enough. I'm I'm glad we met. I'm, I'm glad we've had the opportunity to finally sit down. I think we met initially at Port of the Core last yeah, year, a couple years ago. Yeah, and I don't, you know, we'll see what happens with that uh, and and moving yeah. forward with these festivals. Like you said, I don't know how what what. what I mean, I think gonna we're going to come out of it, but I think next year at this
1: time we're going to be having our events and parties, and and um, I think. I think it's, I hate to be a pessimist, but I think it's going to take us till, till next spring before
0: we have a viable solution that, that gets us back to pre-COVID times. Yeah, I don't think it's being a pessimist. I just think it's, look, you're a business person. And, and again, you, you don't want to live in that, in that world of, you know, hey, we'll just, we can tomorrow, we'll get 15 people at the bar side by side. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Um, it's not going to happen, number one, because of the safety concerns and the concern for your staff and the, the patron, but people's expectations to come in here and want to sit next to or stand next to somebody that they don't know. You know, it's funny. The, the,
1: there's a whole spectrum of people and how they react to the, the situation. We get calls literally every day as you're tasting them open. And there's lots of people that want to just come in and get back to normal and have drinks, and they're willing to take the chance
0: and come out and hang out yeah so, i mean that's a. Like, I think that's a whole conversation sure. for for a whole di- a number of different levels yeah. um right. i hope and i can't wait for you and stone and key sellers to get back to that normal Yeah, um, because i think that's what really i mean you know meeting the people here the welcoming side of things how how you just become like it's like your, your family once you once you walk in the door it's like you get treated like uh, you, sure. you're a regular and i think that's a, that's a special uh, opportunity that people are missing right now. When people say, hey, are you open? Is your tasting robe open? They miss the interaction. They Absolutely. miss being able to just Absolutely. have a nice glass of wine or try your ciders or whatever you have and new special things. They miss it, and they just want to get back to it, and I can understand that. Well, I appreciate you coming out. Um, you know, lot, I appreciate you having us. A lot of people still
1: don't know we're here. <laughs> you know, Seven years later, I saw people from like two miles away saying, wait, you're, you're a winery? like?" Two miles from here, I can come there and get wine? I'm
0: like, yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, we're still working on getting the word out. Well, we'll keep helping. We appreciate your time. This has been great. Thanks for sharing your ciders today sure. and meeting with uh, Brian and Matt last time for the podcast to talk about the wines and just keep doing what you're doing. We're looking forward to continuing the relationship and just enjoying what you're doing. Cool. Yeah. Well, next time you come out, we'll have a whole batch of new things for you to try. Fabulous. Thanks, Jason. Thank you.